Um, hey, it's really good to be here with you guys this, this morning. I feel like I haven't been to Sunday for a little while. Every time that we've planned to get here over the past month or two, there's been something going on, some sickness amongst the family. So it's good to, to finally be here with you guys. Um, for our next instalment um, of our series in Daniel, Jody's away uh, today, obviously, and uh, he's asked me to kind of wrap up this half of, uh, of the, the series in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, which is a great story. And the Bible's full of amazing stories, isn't it? Um, but there are, there are a few that really stand out as incredible stories that we know and love. Um, and we, we talk about and teach a lot. And as an example, let's play a bit of a word association game. So I'm going to say you know, a name or something that, which, which you'll recognize, and I want you to actually say out loud back to me, what's the, what's the next part? What are you, what, what's the first thing that comes to your head? Okay, so he, it'll make sense. Ready? David and Goliath. Goliath. Yeah, another great story in the Bible, right? It's one that we all know, we all love. Jonah and the whale, of course. Although, did you realize that the, the whale only makes an appearance in like two verses in the whole of Jonah? It's, but that's, that's the thing we focus on, isn't it? Because it's, it's an intriguing part of the story. Noah and the ark, or the flood. Yeah, another story that we, we know a lot about. So it appears in all of the kids' Bible stories, doesn't it? With the picture of the giraffe putting his head out the ark. Uh, Joseph and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those of you who were kind of around in the 70s are probably thinking the Technicolor dream coat, uh, like the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, Joseph and his coat that caused a lot of grief between him and his family. Uh, here's a bit of a deep niche reference. It'll be interesting to see who knows this one. Balaam and his donkey. Yeah, there you go. Last, last night, people were like, uh, I'm not sure. But everyone knows, everyone's obviously been up to date with Numbers 23. Um, and of course, Daniel and the lion's den, which is the story we've come to tonight. And it's a story that anyone who's gone to uh, Sunday school or youth group or scripture at schools uh, or who's just kind of been around Christian circles for a little while, it's one that we know. We teach it over and over, especially to our kids, because in it we see um, an incredible miracle performed by a powerful God. But like so many of the, the Sunday school's greatest hits, it's more than just a great story. There's something deeper going on. Um, and in, there's something deeper going on in the story of Daniel and the lion's den. They're merely a miraculous rescue. It's a story of both actual literal lions, but also metaphorical lions who are seeking to devour God's faithful servant for their own personal gain. It's a story of brazen political manoeuvrings, lust for power. We see the guilty being punished, the innocent vindicated. And through this story, it gives us another opportunity to see who rules really. That's the phrase we've been hearing over and over again through Daniel, isn't it? Who rules really? And in Daniel chapter 6, we see that despite what it seems like from a human point of view, there is a God overseeing it all, working for the glory of his name and the good of those who love him. And so as we turn to Daniel chapter 6, uh, why don't we start by, by praying? So let's Pray to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that through it you speak to us. And Lord, as we hear you speak from Daniel 6 today, Lord, please give us ears to hear, and eyes to see, hearts to understand what you're saying, 
uh, and accept it uh, and apply it into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I'm going to be taking it Jody style this week, going just starting at the start and going verse by verse like Jody normally does. So if you've brought your Bible, you can open it up or open your Bible app or it's going to be up on the screen as well. Um, we're going to start at verse 1. So Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. So the first character we meet is Darius the Mede. And this is the third king that we have met in the book of Daniel. You might have remembered from a few weeks ago, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who, along with many other things, kind of was really brought low by the Lord uh, and got to the point where he started to recognize God's power and sovereignty over all things, even in his city, Babylon. And then last week in chapter 5, we read about King Belshazzar. Uh, It's a very kind of bogan name for a king, that one, isn't it? Shazzar. Anyway, uh, uh, when we read about how his bad decision to flippantly insult the Lord uh, by using the sacred goblets from his temple um, in Jerusalem in a really disrespectful and, and blasphemous way, which provoked the Lord God to anger and caused him to bring down King Belshazzar immediately. Uh, He brought him to his downfall, which the Lord orchestrated through this guy, Darius the Mede, the new king. Um, Now, if you've read other parts of the Bible, you might have come across a character named Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia. And it's the same guy. Um, In in, uh, Isaiah and the book of Ezra, he talks about King Cyrus of Persia. And uh, there's a little kind of note that that it's the same person. He's got two names, apparently, King Cyrus, but also uh, Darius the Mede. And his first act in office is to change the governance structures of the entire nation and split it into 120 provinces, over which he appointed high officers to rule, 120 of them. And then over those 120, the next verse, the king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interest. Darius is no fool. He knows that he's not going to be able to wrangle 120 politicians all by himself without getting burned. And so he sets in place three men that he feels he can trust as administrators over the lot to help him ensure that things don't get too out of hand. And because he's a faithful and wise man with tons of integrity, Daniel gets promoted into one of these three positions of influence and authority. And unsurprisingly for us, because we've read the the previous five chapters and we know what Daniel's like, we see that he excels in this position. Verse 3, Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Another promotion for Daniel. No sooner has he been made the kind of the regional manager that he proves himself worthy of national director. Not that he goes seeking it, but because of his faithfulness and his wisdom and integrity and that they're clearly on display every day, that's seen as an asset to, to the king. And so he promotes him. It reminds me of another story, one of the other good stories in the Bible, which we've already mentioned to, uh, today, is the story of Joseph. Back in Genesis. Do you remember what happened to Joseph? 
He was sent into slavery in a foreign land, like Daniel. And because of his integrity and skill, he kept on being put in charge of things, like Daniel. He was put in charge at Potiphar's house, and then when that went south, when he went to prison, he actually ended up being kind of in charge of the prison, even though he was a prisoner there as well. And then through interpreting the king's dreams, like Daniel, he found himself as the administrator over all of Egypt. And Daniel is following this same pattern as Joseph. He's being promoted to oversee not only Babylon, but the entire Persian Empire. Now, Daniel, he was a faithful Jew, right? So he's read his Bible and he would have known the story of Joseph well. And I imagine that in Joseph, Daniel would have found a good role model that he wanted to follow. An example of faithfulness to God in the midst of a turbulent uh, foreign political environment. And an example of what happens for God's people when they keep their t- integrity intact, even in these high positions, rather than buckling under the pressures and conforming to the culture around them. And so it's entirely possible that in Joseph, Daniel found a role model in a similar way to which Daniel himself might be a role model for us today as we read of his faithfulness in a hostile environment. Because It's kind of where we're at as well. You may have noticed our culture isn't exactly growing warmer towards Christians either. When we see those of our brothers and sisters who are a bit more in the limelight, whether they be politicians or sports stars or whatever, it seems that things are just a little more hostile towards them than they used to be, doesn't it? Which is the context that we see that it was like for Daniel, verse 4. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. It turns out that two of the three administrators and some of the other high officers um, that Darius appointed to look after his interests are actually more interested in their own success and statuses. And like the slimy politicians that they are, they begin trying to take down Daniel in order to take his latest promotion and status for themselves. But, try as they might, they just can't seem to dig up any dirt on Daniel. They can find no backroom deals, no questionable alliances with shifty characters, no backstabbings, no hints of treachery. And so, it continues, they couldn't find anything to criticise or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So, they concluded... Our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Daniel's track record is impeccable in every way. And when they can't find any dirt, they come up with a cunning plan to use Daniel's strength against him. To use his faithful integrity as the very thing that traps him. And so the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. This is their cunning plan. It's an audacious ploy to help them grasp at Daniel's power and status for themselves. 
First of all, they lie to the king. They say, we're all in agreement. And in fact, how could they be? What about Daniel? He's one of the administrators. Surely he wasn't in agreement. But that's what they say. They, they lie to the king. And what they're doing is trying to strong arm him into decreeing a law which, although it seems to be affirming his rule, actually ends up undermining it. It's a shrewd political ploy playing off Daniel's loyalty to the king against his devotion to God, forcing him to choose between, on the one hand, being faithful to his God, as he always is, and therefore defying the will of the king, or on the other hand, worshipping the king and so breaking his integrity and being unfaithful to his God. And if it works, it results in a lose-lose situation for Daniel. But these administrators can't carry out the plan without the king's stamp of approval. And so they play to his ego, lying to him, strong-arming him into doing what they want, and urging him in verse 8, And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. And so King Darius signed the law. And just like that, their trap is set. Now, if only they knew the truth. Like, as, as I was preparing for this uh, sermon uh, today, I, I was thinking if only they were familiar with the book of Genesis and with the story of Joseph, and like Daniel would have been. They would have known then that it would work out so much better for them with Daniel in charge. Because we see in Genesis that the whole point of God calling Abraham's descendants together into the nation of Israel is so that the rest of the world would be blessed through their ministry to them. The truth is, things would have been so much better with Daniel overseeing things, just like it was with Joseph overseeing things in Egypt. But these men, they hadn't read Genesis, and they were blinded by their jealousy of Daniel and their desire for more power. And so in seeking his downfall, spoiler alert, it, it only ends badly for them, at least to their downfall. Verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its window open toward Jerusalem. And he prayed three times a day, just as he always had done, giving thanks to his God. Now, Daniel, he's not a stupid guy. If we've learned anything from the first five chapters, it's that Daniel is pretty much the sharpest tool in the shed. He's wise. He knew what was going on with these guys. He knew what was happening with this new law. He probably even knew exactly who had orchestrated it and that they were behind it trying to get him to pull him down. He would have known all that. And so Daniel's faced with a choice. Does he follow God's law? Or King Darius's law. And it's a high stakes kind of a choice. You know, does he disregard the king's new law and undoubtedly suffer the consequence for his insubordination, which, you know, just being thrown to a bunch of lions, it's nothing big, it's huge. Or on the other hand, does he submit to Darius and as a result deny his God and violate the first two of the Ten Commandments? 
You must have no other God before me and don't worship idols. That's the choice. Now, as we said, Daniel would have read his Bible. He knows that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And even as he kind of uh, looks back at his own experiences in life, he can see the Lord's faithfulness in some incredible ways. You know, remember the dreams that he's interpreted? Remember the, fire, the incident of the fiery furnace, that miraculous thing? Like he's seen some incredible things happen at the hand of the Lord. And he knows that. And on top of that, he's a man of integrity, particularly when it comes to his faith in God. You remember chapter 1 of Daniel, where he rejected the king's food because of what it would imply about his relationship and kind of duty to the king. And how, so far in Daniel, not once, not twice, but three times he has rebuked kings for their sinful ways and boldly outlined their condemnation from God to them. Like he's, he doesn't shy away from making hard decisions, this guy, Daniel. And on top of that, he knows who rules really. And so Daniel just, it's not really a decision for him. He just continues as normal, unashamedly living out his faith in God. He goes home and he prays. He does exactly what the administrators hoped and knew that he would do. And they were ready for him. Verse 11. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and they found him praying and asking God for help. You can imagine their delight seeing Daniel uh, praying to the Lord and falling into their trap so speedily. They'd barely even set this trap and already they'd caught their prey. And so what did they do? Verse 12. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about the, his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone divine or human except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Their, their feigned coyness here is a little bit sickening, isn't it? As if they weren't entirely sure that they, that they knew that the king had signed this edict. They were the ones who had orchestrated the whole thing. They're just playing dumb. But that's because they knew that this would be the moment that King Darius would cotton on to their plot against Daniel. And so just before they tell him about his beloved Daniel praying to, to the Lord... They remind the king that it's in fact his responsibility. He's the one that signed this law, this unchangeable law. He's the one that is responsible for condemning Daniel. It's not us. We had nothing to do with it. It was you. You're the one that signed the law. And so they're reminding him of this. They ask him in that coy way and, and King um, Darius says, yes, that decision still stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Now, did you notice how they spoke about Daniel? That man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah. They're choosing their words very carefully here and subtly undermining him in the way that they talk about him. Now, just referring to him merely as that man, well, it's not usually how someone would have referred to one of the most powerful people in the whole Persian Empire. 
strips him of his status and honour and paints him as just another unimportant bloke, merely a regular Joe. But then they take it further. They point out to the king that, in fact, he's one of the captives from Judah, one of the slaves. So he's even less than a regular Joe. He's a lowly slave from a conquered nation. Basically, what they're saying to Darius is, how can you ever be sure of this bloke when he's not one of us? He's a foreigner who served some of your enemy kings. And now, O king, he's ignoring your law. These guys, they have well and truly pulled the wool over King Darius's eyes. And as King Darius recognises that he's been duped, he starts to feel like a grade A fool. Verse 14. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. The king is troubled because he can see now that these men that he'd employed to protect his interests are actually looking out for their own interests at the expense of his. And he's troubled because he's about to lose the only trustworthy man that he's got to a den of lions. At his own hand, he's about to throw him there because of this unchangeable law. And he's troubled because his thoughtless actions have led to the condemnation of a good man. And so Darius spends the rest of the day looking for a loophole, trying to avoid having to throw Daniel to the lions and losing his only trusted administrator. But the other administrators, they're not going to have a bar of that. They're not going to let him succeed. So eventually, they, in the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. And you can hear them saying, Checkmate, at that point, because they know they've got him. And so... At last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. It seems that all is lost for Daniel, that his faithfulness to God has been his downfall. But of course, we know that there's more to this story, right? We've read chapters 1 to 5. We know that God's mighty to save. He saved Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Surely he's able to do the similar thing for Daniel. We're not about to be surprised by what happens next because we know how God works. We know how God has that power to save. But what is surprising is that King Darius might also have an inkling of God's power too. Because as Daniel's being led towards the den, Darius says this peculiar thing. The king said to him, May your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. And Darius obviously holds some amount of hope that Daniel's God might just have the power and the inclination to rescue him. And so he utters this kind of prayer, really, isn't it? May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. It's kind of ironic, really, because he's, he's, saying this, he's uttering this prayer, but it's actually in defiance of his own decree about praying to anyone except to himself. But I guess he's not about to throw himself into a den of lions, is he? So instead, the king called for a stone to be brought. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seal of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. 
Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. So after ensuring that no human could actually save Daniel by putting all those seals on the, on the stone, King Nebuchadnezzar goes home to his palace and begins fasting. Now fasting is something that people did, or some still do, to petition their God to action. And so by giving up food, it's supposed to encourage you to focus your intention on God and express your dependence on him to provide. And on one level, to prove to him the seriousness with which you are hoping that he will answer your prayer. And so Darius keeps down this line of, of, of petitioning God, even though it's in direct violation of his own decree. It shows us how earnestly Darius wants God to honour Daniel's faithfulness and save him from the lions. There's a real connection, isn't there, that Daniel has managed to forge with King Darius, even in such a short time of service. The wisdom, the faithfulness, integrity that Daniel shows every day of his life has been a witness to King Darius of his God. It's like how the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 12, um, up here is the NLT version. I'm going to read out the NIV version. It says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In- integrity. It's when our words and our actions line up. And when Christians live out integrity, it, imp- it impacts the world around them. The way that we as God's people live out our faith from day to day, despite the kind of trials and persecution that come our way as a result, it speaks volumes to those around us of the love and the character and the worth of the God that we worship. And Daniel's observable faith in the Lord has been a tangible witness to King Darius, causing him to begin to recognise who rules really. And step by step, Darius' heart is becoming more inclined towards Daniel and towards the Lord. So much that, in verse 19, uh, very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, Long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. So the king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. God saves Daniel. And by saving him, God vindicates Daniel. He declares him to be innocent. Innocent of sinning against God. Innocent of sinning against the king. Everyone can see that Daniel's God has worked to prove this. To vindicate him by sending his angel to protect him from the lions. Both the literal lions in the den, but also those political lions who preyed upon his status seeking to bring him down and usurp his position and authority. And much like, do you remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Do you remember what happened when they were pulled out of the fiery furnace? They had no burns on them. They didn't even smell of smoke. So Daniel emerges from the lion's den without even a scratch. 
a testament to the faith and trust he has exercised in his God. And it ends up being much, much more than we can say for the next people who, has, who have an experience with those particular lions. As we read on. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. And he had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. The lions leapt on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Now, here is one of those horrible places in the Bible where something really kind of significantly terrible happens, I think. Retribution is carried out, carried out towards the men who maliciously accused Daniel, but it's not only to them, but their entire families as well. Now, it's hard to stomach the, the idea of innocent people, innocent kind of connected people, the women and children, the wives and, and sons and daughters, also suffering in such a horrible way for that something that they themselves didn't actually do. And it might cause us to ask, why? Why, God? Why does, why does this thing happen? Well, there are a few things that we need to recognise. The first is that this punishment was not ordered by God, but by King Darius, as a way of asserting his dominance and communicating that there are dire consequences for those who cross him. Now, after having had the wool pulled pulled down over his eyes in such a significant and public way, Darius would have felt embarrassed, I think. And so he would have felt the need to act to deter others from trying to, make, trying to take advantage of him as well. And so he chose to make a huge and terrible statement by doing things this way. The second thing is that just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay or that God condones it as something good. God hates that this kind of thing happens. He doesn't want for people that he has made in his own image to suffer such terrible things. But, for now, the reality is we continue to live in a world that is broken by our sin and is subject to sin. And so, for the time being, God, in his sovereignty, allows the world to continue experiencing the consequences of sin and brokenness. And he'll allow it up until the time when Jesus returns to end sin, end sin's reign once and for all. God is the sovereign one. He is the one who rules, not us. And I guess that's what we get out of this. And, and this is what the passage goes on to help us realise as it recounts a message that King Darius sent throughout the world in light of this event. So verse 25, then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. King Darius kind of sees who rules really and he, he corrects his decree about worshipping no other God except him himself and points people to the Lord because he can see the Lord is the living God. He's the one with the power. He's the one who has rescued Daniel from the power 
of the lions. And so that brings us to the conclusion of the story. And so what do we gain from Daniel chapter 6? Well, there are three things that I want to quickly point out before we wrap up. The first is that true faith costs something. The Christian life isn't just about reaping the benefits of heaven and getting the reward at the end. With no impact on life now. Now it's true that our salvation is a gift from God. We are saved by grace, through faith, as Ephesians says. But true faith will have real implications in this life. It will cost something. Um, I, like I said before, I like to read fantasy novels and books. In my, um, my book that I'm reading at the moment is my bookmark, to help me remember where it is. And on this bookmark is a quote um, from uh, uh, a man named J.C. Ryle. Uh, who was a, a, a pastor from a couple of hundred years back, written some incredible books. And this quote from J.C. Ryle says, a religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. True faith will cost us something. And Daniel was willing to put it all on the line to maintain his integrity and his identity as one of God's faithful ones, despite putting himself at odds with the world. He was willing to endure that cost. Are we willing to do likewise? Are you willing to put yourself at odds with the world for the sake of remaining faithful to the living God? Do you have faith in Jesus? Because true faith will cost something. It's the first thing. The second thing is that God will rescue his faithful ones. It's a pattern we see over and over and over in the Bible. And here we see it again uh, in Daniel chapter 6. God rescues his faithful ones. Now, it doesn't mean that he rescues us from every single trouble or difficulty that we face along the way. Trials still come. They did for Daniel. He was still actually thrown into a den of lions. Sure, he was saved from it. But can you imagine being in a den of lions overnight? It would have been hardcore, scary. It would have been a trial. God didn't save him from that. God never promises to save us from every trial. And in fact, as we read the Bible, we see that often there's something significant that we gain as we endure trial and hardship. But in the end, God will rescue his faithful ones and he rescues them from their greatest enemy of all, death. Just as Jesus says to Martha in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who, lives in, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? God rescues his faithful ones from death. And that's the second thing. Finally, we see that the story of Daniel foreshadows Jesus. Like Daniel, Jesus maintained his integrity and faithfulness to God despite those metaphorical lions who were seeking to devour him. And like Daniel, Jesus was willing to pay the cost for faith in God, not by being thrown into a lion's den, but by being nailed to a cross. But unlike Daniel, Jesus didn't come through the cross unscathed with no scratches on him. Despite his innocence, Jesus 
actually was nailed to the cross. And some pretty significant scratches in his hands and feet. And he faced death on that cross. But he did it willingly. Because unlike Daniel, the cost paid by Jesus actually accomplished something more than maintaining his integrity and faithfulness. It accomplished eternal salvation. It's through the cross that God rescues his faithful ones and defeats their enemy, death. And it's through Jesus' resurrection that God vindicated not just one man, but all who turn to Jesus in faith, who likewise will receive eternal life through their faith. Jesus is the true eternal king. He is the one who rules really. And so I just want to finish by leaving you with this question to to mull over, to chew on. How will you live out your faith in Jesus with wisdom and integrity, both here and now, in the week to come, but also in the rest of your life ahead? How will you live out your faith in Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the model that Daniel is to us of faithfulness and wisdom and integrity despite the pressures around him. And thank you for the true faithful one, our Lord Jesus, who died and rose again to save us from the greatest of all enemies, death. Lord, help us to live our lives in service of him above all others. And Lord, by your spirit work in us to give us wisdom and faithfulness and integrity that bears witness to those around us of the amazing God we worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.